Welcome to the future of music. My name is Jake Abel, and I started this podcast as a passionate music fan interested in how technological developments like Web3 and AI will disrupt and continue to affect the music industry. Each week, I talk with artists, entrepreneurs, and music professionals about all things music and tech. So whether you're a musician, industry professional, music or tech enthusiast, or just have a curious mind, I'm hoping this podcast can become a resource for you to learn from me and the incredible guests I have on and to prepare yourself for the future of music. This podcast is released in collaboration with Float and Experimental Label Media Company and music platform I've been working with that helps artists create music and release it as digital assets. Check out the links in the show notes to find us on social media, see what we're up to and discover some incredibly talented, independent artists. In the spirit of technological development, I have started using an AI model of my voice to create my intros. Young Spielberg is a Grammy award-winning music producer, a songwriter, the head of collaborative research at Water and Music, and among other things, a friend. He was a huge reason I got so interested in Water and Music in the first place and really helped me understand what their membership is all about and where their best resources are. We've been trying to find some time for this podcast for like nine months now, so I was super pumped we finally got it done. We had an amazing conversation about water and music, AI, the future of music creation and its effects on the industry, his background in music and Web3, and much more. I hope you learned something new from today's episode. Here is Jan Spielberg. You know, so many freaking tools to keep up with. Trying. There's a lot. I mean, this is why having a community of, you know, a hundred people who are on it every day is the only way to like, like three people can never cover the, the breadth as fast as the space is moving. You know, I think that's, yeah. the, that's the whole theory behind water and music is like three people can't possibly cover this topic accurately in the time that's needed. Yeah, Sherry was giving me the background when we talked, whatever it was, a week or two ago about, you know, she was just interested in learning about all this shit. And then as just the pace of everything started increasing, she was like, I, I need help if any of this is going to be useful. Right. Um, Is that what there is in Water Music? You think like 100 daily active uh, community members? I mean, I know there's thousands of just paid subscribers or lifetime oh, no, there's more there's hundreds but i meant just in the ai oh, okay like folks who are like constantly talking the ai chat it's like, it's probably less than 100 just in the ai chat i should get in there honestly because um it's it's just so interesting and i keep looking for new tools and new ways to like help streamline everything i'm doing um yeah i mean and and water and music has been a great resource in the past i should probably tap back in i'm slowly making my way through season three um well, hopefully a bit more accessible you know i really like the format change i did great That's yeah it. yeah i think when you when the you know season one through two i guess um i mean they're great and i learn a lot but like you just see this giant giant article and it's hard to tell how long it's going to take you and i mean it wasn't really a big deal i would just like you know set a uh mental or like digital bookmark at like which section i had finished but um i like the change the change format i thought it was it was definitely a little bit more digestible i knew something had to change when greg bresnitz who you know he i think i don't know what his actual title is but like head of experience over at 
FWB. He ran like experience at Ace Hotel for a long time, but he was like, loves water and music. And he's like, you know, the report came out and he's like, yeah, cleared this schedule for the weekend and got a bottle of wine. I'm getting ready to begin. I'm like, if that's what people need to <laughs> do to be able to read what we're doing, then we need to change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that makes sense. Um, Cause it is, I mean, it's a time investment for sure, but yeah, I mean, again, I thought you guys did a good job of, of making it a little bit more easy to consume. Um, were you, when, when did you start getting involved with water music? You've been there a while now. Uh, November or, uh, maybe October of 2021. So not that long. Oh yeah. Like, no, that was like right when we met at, in New York. I had just, yeah, I, I basically was really at the right place in the right time, right as season one was going on. And I didn't even realize that that was like the first season. I just thought I found this community of people that were so smart and I, I found it so inspiring um, and so I was just getting super involved. I didn't realize it was the first season and I was actually helping to build the infrastructure of what was going on. I think so often in water and music, which is funny, everyone just assumes everyone else knows exactly what's going on, <laughs> but, but which we absolutely do. But, um, but there's definitely also an element of everybody figuring it out as right. well. Um, <laughs> By now, you know, our third season, we have a much better sense of, you know, how to organize and get the best experience and best research out. But in the beginning, we were just making it up. So you were helping orchestrate all of the research and then the output of the articles for season one, like you got involved and then helped create season one. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What were you like? How did you stumble upon Water and Music and then get so involved? A Cooper Turley tweet. Solid. Ten, ten DAOs to look at. Mm -hmm. And I had COVID, so I couldn't go anywhere. And I wasn't doing in-person sessions. And I said, okay, I'm going to set aside four hours a day to rabbit hole Twitter. And a lot of it was obviously driven, was honestly driven by F NFT FOMO. Uh, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people were experiencing, but I'd been in 500 discords and I was like, there's nothing here for me. You know, I was about to bail. And then I ended up in water and music and I was like, Oh, it was just incredible music nerds like me. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we're like really interested in, yeah. Analyzing the industry across all these different parts. And yeah, just, I was like, Oh, I think I want to spend a lot of time here seemed like a lot of smart people were there yeah yeah i i and this isn't water and music specific but i just like haven't gotten into su being super active in any of the discords but when i found water music i would just like read some articles here and there and then read season you know i read season one and one and a half and then i'm making my way through season three and would like to read you know i want to consume as much of those collaborative projects as i can because there's, you know, it's just such a valuable source of information. So, you know, my involvement has been more, uh, you know, just sort of watching what gets put out. But um, yeah, ever since I discovered the community, I was like, yeah, this is 
this is a really great resource. Um, I've plugged it on the podcast quite a lot leading up to these two these two conversations with you and Sherry. I appreciate it. Um, I tell you, I mean, I feel like you know we've been seeing each other around right, yeah, two years, which is really fun. Yeah, it's cool. It's like these these go way better when it's not just my first time meeting someone. It's someone like that I've talked to at least like in person definitely helps, but. I've been trying to schedule just more intro calls just to talk to people before, you know, sitting down with them for an hour or so. Um, so yeah, the one with Sherry went, went super well. I did a couple in person at, um, at South by in Denver and going to do some in New York with just people I've just run into at all the conferences and stuff. And yeah, it, it goes really well when it's someone, you know, a little bit better. Is there a theme shaping up for the pod? Um, I mean, the theme is tech and music, really. Like, it was Web3 for the start, and then I just, like, started getting so interested in AI and, and wanting to branch out of just, like, the the niche within a niche of Web3 music and just, you know, branch out a little bit more to just technology and music. So, um, I mean, the theme is still Web3-focused, and I think AI is my my favorite topic otherwise. But I'm trying to... I'm trying to diversify it even more than that and and see what cool content I could come up with. Um, water and music's definitely a source of inspiration there. I, I, that's smart. And like I got involved, season one was obviously Web3 and now I'm very deep in the AI stuff too. So I can appreciate that arc of interest mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, everyone who was into Web3 is just like naturally into AI because it's just the tech you know theme that is exciting so you know more emerging technologies are are um just get brought to the table a lot more so i think that more than anything is why i got so interested in ai it's like everyone in web3 was just talking about it all the time right yeah i can understand so yeah you know we'll we'll see we'll see where it goes um i was i was having this talk with sherry too like what do you think what do you think we need to do with just as um, creators and artists and people working in music? Like, how do you think we foster AI and Web3 and other technologies in the right way? Like, how do we make sure that as these technologies develop, they're actually helping all the people that we really want them to help? That's a really loaded question yeah it's pretty loaded <laughs> because i think the answer which maybe isn't useful and maybe will sound a bit fatalist but i don't think it has a lot to do with well let me let me ask you this who who should the technologies be helping? Like in 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 our mind, yeah. Like who's the who's the uh, what, what's it called? You know, the protagonist of the story. Right. The, yeah. The I mean, I think my personal answer is is well. I, I want to say independent artists off the top of my head, but I don't think it should only be helping independent artists, artists who are 
signed to major labels and already successful, but are doing, you know, creating great art, it should be helping them too. Um, it's almost easier to define like who it shouldn't be helping. Like, I feel like it shouldn't be helping massive corporations and it shouldn't be helping. Um, I mean, I, I feel like it should be helping everyone else, like entrepreneurs, independent artists, um, you know, creatives, people in general. Like, I think um, it should just be helping individuals uh, become both financially and creatively free and sustainable. Um, what it doesn't need to do is put the money, put more money into the people who are already wealthy, I think. Here's the rub, is that everybody views this technology through a very narrow lens of their own vocation and more specifically how it affects their own bottom line. So let me give you an example. I'm an independent artist and it's been really hard for me to fund video content above, let's say, what I can do with my iPhone, which by the way, can be amazing, but maybe that's not my gift is creating video content. Some people, you know, can do amazing things with their iPhone, their editors, but that's not mine. So I haven't been able to really get great video content yet. I know video content content is the highest performing kind of content you could put out. It'll outperform text. It'll outperform audio only, you know, however that even looks on social media. Um, you know, social media is such a largely visual thing and like humans are largely visual too. Um, I was just listening to something the uh, yesterday that was explaining like, I think 40% of our brain volume has to do with our visual uh, infrastructure. I think I saw that also. I don't know where that was. It was but... Hubberman on Peter Atia, uh, the Drive podcast. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm making a very roundabout answer, but basically what I was going to say is this. I... I'm really excited about Kyber. I'm really excited about, you know, pollinations. I'm really excited about some of these video generators because now I don't have to pay an animator 5K to get just simple content. I'll still want to work with somebody for the content that really means a lot to me or I really want to craft. But now I can get a certain above a certain bar very cheaply. And that's great for me, independent artists. We want me to win, right? But now there are all these graphic designers and animators where kind of this lower rung of products, they are now going to get squeezed. Mm -hmm. And so everybody, and even me, okay, I'm a producer. You know what would be great? If a plugin could mix for me, if it could right. analyze and go in and turn the knobs on all my other plugins, not just a mastering plugin, but like, a mixer plugin, how great would that be for me, independent artists? But even within music industry, now I'm not going to be hiring that mixer where he's had in his career is 250 or $500 a mix. That guy's gone. Right. And yeah. so, so and, and then, you know, uh, comparison or analogy for me is like, maybe I need 
music for a podcast intro or outro. And I know you make some music like that. And now there's tools where, you know, it's text to audio and it'll give me some really basic beats that will suffice for using some music for content purposes where it's really background music. And then someone like yourself, because I know you've done some podcast music production, you don't have those gigs anymore. Those gigs are few and far between with people using tools like AI. So the middle class gets squished. And by the way, we already think that's true in music. I remember when I started, when I came out to LA 10 years ago, and I was really, really lucky working for um, a really big producer out here. He said to me, oh, the middle class is gone. The A guys are around, but the C and B guys, there's no room for them anymore. You know, and maybe that has actually come up a bit because with DistroKid, people are able to distribute and kind of build more independent outfits. But for a long time, when it was when the barrier of creativity was still high enough that you still needed a decent amount of money to make a record or you were looking for budgets from a major label, that middle class got totally squeezed out until the barrier became so low that more people could come up from the bottom. And maybe that's what we'll see in AI, but yeah, I think largely there are products. The way I think about it is this, my podcast theme product is a bespoke product that a few folks who want to spend a lot of money and get a really custom concierge experience are still going to buy. But if I was going to have a product that was, let's say, a tenth of the cost, that's going to get automated away with like Ava. By the way, I got a call to do Lex Friedman's music. Cool. I, was, I listen I was, to him every day. Yeah, not so cool because I was gallivanting around Miami. I missed the call. And it was a very short turnaround. And the uh, anime who I work with all the time said, hey, I just had to move on it. We had to get something done. Don't worry. I used Ava and he was fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you know. Ava is what uh, one of those text to audio tools? Uh, it's not text to audio, but it's meant for content creators, this exact kind of scenario. Okay. And there's editing capabilities. It's not just like press a button, get a song, but... Mm -hmm. It's press a button, get a song, and then it gives you ways to manipulate that. It's a good product. Um, so, you know, if you want an instrumental theme, it's a very affordable way to go about it. But like, you know, for like All In, right, that's the big one that everybody always comes to me about. I heard you on All In. I heard you on All In. Can we do something? That's singing the title. It's still, you're still not going to get that kind of thing from an AI. Right. Yeah, it's 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 better for really basic background stuff, instrumental themes for sure. Um where do you think like I mean just I guess you sort of said, you know, people are going to want to pay for this more advanced bespoke stuff still. What do you think someone who's like let's say mixes and masters professionally or does really basic lo-fi type beats for you know small sync and licensing opportunities like what do you, where do you think they go what do you think they do with all this i think the question really becomes how how easy the tools become to where let's say the person creating the music 
truly gets bypassed or are they just now able to make 20 times the amount of music or a hundred times the amount of music. It's not as going to be as satisfying, but like if you're, if you're part of, let's say like a library production team, I am sure like, I think it would be good business to look at this tech and see, can I make this efficient? You know, can I make this process more efficient without sacrificing the artistic integrity of the music? Um, but, you know, there's like these anecdotes and anecdotes going around now. People who were making 3D characters for a living used to take them two weeks. Now that, you know, they can use a lot of these image generators to cut the time in half. But a lot of what they enjoy doing is is no longer a part of the process hand drawing things or using the tools they're just prompting things into life and he's like this isn't why i became a designer to like become a prompter right uh that's a spooky anecdote it's brutal because the promise for ai tooling was to eliminate jobs we don't like doing right that's what the whole premise was. You're going to have more time to do what you like to do. And it's really unnerving that the first real intrusion is actually into the creative industries. It's like, wait a second. These are the, these are the jobs we like doing. We're not supposed to be eliminating these jobs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like as far as music goes, I feel like it doesn't intrude too much into the part that people really like doing like i feel like right now it's most helpful with mixing and mastering or you know ideating on lyrics but not not good at final product um creating and coming up with samples but you know decreasing the amount of time people spend searching for and like fine-tuning them and getting stuff from their head to be able to you know, on paper to be able to get listened to. So as far as, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on it? And as far as music creation goes and like the parts that people like doing. Yeah, you're right. Right now in music, it's still very much a tool that artists use and, and it can't, um, it can't create like these tools don't create at the high level when it comes to making pop songs but like we said, like Ava is responsible for, as far as I know to this day, Lex Friedman's podcast music. So like that's music that reaches millions of years all the, you know, every week or whenever he publishes. You know, that would be, that would have been something I would have liked to have done or another musician I'm sure would have liked to have done, but it sits in a product category that, I think is kind of ripe to be automated away. Yeah, it's, it's uh, at least, you know, reading season three, that's the first thing I saw is like ready to, or, you know, will be the most disrupted. The quickest is that type of, that type of content. Um, have you listened to his, his interview with, with Sam Altman that came out, I think last week. Well, I haven't. So I've been listening to it. For anyone who's listening who doesn't know, Sam Altman is the founder and CEO of OpenAI, who created 
Dolly and ChatGPT. Um, and he, uh, he's fun to listen to. I think his outlook on everything is obviously more optimistic than most people. I mean, it, I think it's pretty in tune with my personal outlook, although I, you know, I know that too much optimism can be dangerous, but he really, I, I think it was encouraging to listen to how, how much he says that him and the people at the company are thinking about just the dangers of everything and how it can really benefit the most people and how he knows it's there. It's gonna take some jobs away and, you know, fuck some people over in some bad ways and people might try to use it for bad, but hopefully it'll be doing more good. And he's just super conscious about, I think every issue that anyone is worried about. So it was encouraging to sort of hear him touch on all of those. Um, and then Lex released another podcast like two days ago with um, I forget his name, some data scientist or, you know, AI researcher or something who's like super anti-AI and very pessimistic. Eliezer Yudowski. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I've heard him. He's making the rounds. Um, so I'm excited to finish up the one with Sam Altman and then listen to that one and then formulate a more complete opinion of where everything's going. Yeah, I mean this this isn't like super tech related, but I think about the the power of um the human condition in terms of being influenced by greed and power and competition and when you put that like we get influenced by this in our daily little peon lives being at the top of these companies, the the forces would be so great, right? Like these this seemingly dick swinging contest going on between Microsoft and Google, and you know their acquisition of OpenAI, and then it's like, but the technology is like the implications. I, to be honest, I just don't trust. I, I think it'd be incredibly difficult to keep very clear thinking, uh, you know, to keep, have very clear thinking kind of around. Yeah, like, definitely. They touched on. Yeah. I'm not trying to point fingers. I, I'm just saying it's like, I take everything these guys say with a grain of salt. Yeah. Because, you know. Understandably. So they touched on that a little bit in the podcast and Sam Altman said that, uh, he does think about that type of corruption of power. And it is a bit scary at times to think about how the development of AI and, and AGI at some point when it's really affecting everyone in the world's lives on a day-to-day -day basis in a really significant way will be controlled by thousands or maybe tens of thousands of people at the, at the higher rungs of the few companies that are really developing the technology in the way that it affects everyone. And it's kind of, you know, those thousand, whatever, thousands of people are really sort of dictating the way this technology affects the entire world is kind of scary. And he said that, you know, in thinking about that, he's hoping to make the decision process for the development of AGI become more democratic over time not just within the company, but within the citizens of the world. 
Um, and they and they haven't really figured out how to do that, but he has said that that is a goal. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. It's like, we'll see. You know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's not, doesn't have a lot to do with music and tech, but one thing I we do. We can th- branch out. That's all right. <laughs> one thing I do think is it's not stopping. Right. Like, like technologies, I think historically don't get squished out mm-hmm. like less by market, you know, market forces, but right. I don't think, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think we're going to quote unquote stop this. Like what Eliezer, Eliezer yeah. I don't think that's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was having that exact conversation with a friend earlier today. We were texting about that, how like, I mean, and I think I sort of use that as the basis of my general output of and general outlook on everything is that like human progress is like the most human technological progress is like the most constant thing in all of history. Humans Mm -hmm. will continue to try to make new things and try to make life better and just try to create new technologies. And it's it's always been like that. And it's sort of impossible to stop if you're not the person or the company working on the next big idea, someone else is going to be doing it. For sure. And so with that, I think I sort of, you know, with that mindset, I'm like, all right, well, shit's moving and it's just coming and it's going to keep affecting things. So how do I position myself in a way where it benefits me and I'm knowledgeable about it and I have a, I can figure out how it can help me and how to make sure it helps other people and, and is used the right way. So, I mean, I feel like everyone I talk to when I bring up the subject is like, oh, yeah, chat GPT scares me. Like, I don't like looking into that stuff. I'm like, that's not going to help you. Totally. Yeah. Ignorance will not be bliss. No, not at all. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's scary, though, how fast things are moving. I was in that conversation. I was like, I forget, thinking or talking about how, like, the rate of progress is so fast that oh this is a question i wanted to ask you like where do you think you know what do you think is going to happen what are the what are the big changes going to be in the next decade or two and i think it's before we get to that i think it's crazy how like you know trying to predict out further than 10 or 15 years is seemingly impossible and you have really no basis of knowledge for how different the world is going to operate and how much technology has going to change in just 10 to 15 years. Whereas you think about your grandparents or like people a hundred years ago or 150 years ago, which isn't that long of time in terms of, you know, human history. um, They knew that their grandkids were going to live nearly an identical life that they lived. Someone who was born in 1800, you know, dies in 1870 when their kid is you know 30 they know that their kids are going to live pretty much the same lives that they did doing the same the same stuff 1850 to like or 1950 to like now a lot more change with like the internet but you know like you compare my grandparents life to my parents life it wasn't it was pretty different but like now you just different. get every generation further it's like the rate of progress is so crazy that now it's like we're talking about 10-year timelines. It used to be 20, and then before that, it was 50. Before that, it was 100. Before that, it was 
500. I yeah, I think that's probably right. I don't have the it feels directionally right. But you know, my grandmother came over here on a dark boat, you know, <laughs> there you know, were no lights on the boat. So that, you know, in 1940 whatever. So it's pretty different, you know, and then she saw the advent of the cell phone. She used to say, oh, that little that's a little magic thing, you know, or I can't remember exactly how she used to call it, but um so yeah, I mean there's there's been a lot of change, but yes, it does feel like it's moving faster. I mean, certainly this technology is moving crazy fast. Really crazy fast. Wild. I I I saw something between like chat GBT between model 3.5 and 4 like model 3.5 scored like 10 percentile on the bar exam and four was like 95th percentile. Yeah. I did. I, I heard about this as well. I, I didn't see the actual um, publishing, but yeah. But I mean, I, you know, the lawyers, at least the ones in our community that we've spoken to, they're stoked because really so many so many parts of being a lawyer are like administratively boring and kind of rote copying and all these things. And they're pretty excited to have something that could speed that process up. The question becomes, I think the question becomes all the processes that this technology eliminates, does it somehow make the next generation less capable of doing the job. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, this is an, here's an interesting thing to think about with music. It's already here. There's, there are so many producers who don't know any music theory and don't know how to play an instrument. Yeah. But they can go on splice and they can pick things out that go well together and they can put the pieces together in a way and understand we don't say that person is a bad producer, you know, just because they don't know music theory. Um, we we won't we don't even say that person's quote not a musician. I mean, we probably even say they're a musician, even though they don't know how to read music or play an instrument. Um, and so, in that case, you know, it it allows people to kind of maybe focus on other things uh in the process so for instance like i don't have how do i say this i don't have i don't have particularly great pitch like even after all these years maybe now just this year i can listen to a song and tell you the chord progression just by listening to it but not perfect pitch maybe relative pitch but even then like i'm really not good at it i need to be at a piano and then i can just hammer it out real quick but i think when you're listening to a song people with incredible pitch especially perfect pitch, they're getting so much information. And I think I've always been very good at putting pieces together, even though I play a lot of instruments, but I'm not a great musician. And so I think my ability to big picture, see how blocks fit, maybe I was able to focus on that from a very young age because I wasn't getting all this other information about the chords and the notes and the melodies and be able to like, you know, translate that back right away. But I could see like, Oh, this part goes here, that part goes here. What if I take that and I move it here and 
you know, thinking a bit more in blocks. So, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of like asked a question, answered my own question. Well, about, do you think that that way of thinking and making music, like, are you saying if that's going to get easier or like there will be, cause I think, yeah, it'll definitely, as the tools get better, hope, hopefully increase the, or decrease the barrier to entry to making music and like putting all those things together, just like electronic music production did. Like before that you needed session musicians to like produce. Yeah. Um, But then there's like the, the, the debate of like oversaturation versus increased creativity. Where do you sit on, on that? Oh, you have to be, it's, it feels evil to say we should limit people's ability to create and express themselves. At the same time, I can say it will become increasingly difficult and perhaps frustrating to compete in an oversaturated market. I heard someone say something once that was pretty poignant and I can't remember what it was. It was, Humans don't just want to create something. They want to be heard. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty poignant to me because there's this narrative out there. Everybody, you know, deserves to create and be able to express themselves. Yes. Sure. Yes. Um, attention is a zero sum game. Unfortunately, every time you're paying attention to one thing, you are not paying attention to everything else. And so I think maybe a lot of us don't want to admit that we also want to be heard. And we also want someone else listening on the other end, a lot of the time. Right. Um, doesn't apply to everyone, but that is overarchingly true that people want others to appreciate their work yeah yeah some people just write a song in their room and then they put the guitar away and it's done like i just wrote it or, or they have their friend you know or they played for their brother or their mother or their father that's fine but like anybody but a lot of people um you know write with aspirations of reaching other people um of expressing themselves, knowing that they're not alone because other people are listening and also helping other people feel that way. And yeah, that's just, that's becoming increasingly difficult. Forget AI. It was already happening. Right. People are have already said there's too much music. I'm sure all of your podcasts, somebody, you know, this point probably gets said in every podcast, which is, I think we were already there. I think Splice <laughs> and DistroKid I don't have the numbers on it, but I assume Splice and DistroKid are responsible for some incredible multiple increase of producers and independent. Mm -hmm. Can we dive into both of those a little bit? I mean, I have a pretty high level understanding of how those have both affected music distribution and creation, but maybe not everyone listening does. So yeah. DistroKid basically just made it really easy for anyone to get their music onto DSPs, right? Correct. Whereas previously, what, you needed to go through like a distributor, they would only go through a label and it was a lot more of a, you know, who you know type of process. I mean, there there have been like TuneCore has been around for a long time. 
I remember, you know, I was using TuneCore independently to go onto iTunes, you know, you're listing my singles for 99 cents, but I just looked back and I couldn't believe it. It was so long ago that they didn't go to Spotify. Uh-huh. You know, I have some music that's only on iTunes. <laughs> right. As albums. I don't even know if it's like available on Apple Music. Maybe it is automatically transferred over. I actually don't know. It must be. Um, and so that's been around for a long time, but I think Distro Kid just reached a lot of people. Um, or they made it really easy. Uh, to split funds, um, you know, to have automatic payments. That's so huge for independent artists. And yeah, I think that had a huge impact. Oh, so you can uh, factor in royalty distribution on DistroKid so that when, you know, so that all the collaborators are getting paid out as the royalties are getting distributed? Correct. Uh huh. Not quite as efficient as the blockchain, but it's getting there. It functions. No, it functions the same. It just yeah. is. Easy. Well, I just mean like you know the the royalty money doesn't come in for a year plus after you get. The uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, distribution is like I think it's like three months. I think it's pretty. Oh really? Wow. I think it's pretty short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, and then splice is sample creation or uh it's just i mean it's and i don't make music so i'm not super familiar but splice is basically just a giant library of samples right right yeah and they have other functionality like where you can work on a project and two people can be working on it and it saves in a basically saves on their server mm-hmm. so we don't have to keep emailing the file back and forth um and I think that was actually their first product, and it just so happened that the sample library took off. Would it intro? Would it integrate with the DAWs people were using? Correct. So uh-huh. I could have an Ableton folder on Splice. Yeah. And basically, I share that with you. I can work on the file, and it saves there. And then you work on the file, and it saves there. Mm-hmm. I don't have to keep sending this file back and forth. I can say, hey, just check the last version in the folder. Yeah. Well, that I'm sure helped collaboration a lot. For sure. But really, I think what increased the amount of independent artists and producers was the sample library, mm-hmm. which just caught fire. And I think it's uh, it's just so well done. I also think it makes them the most, I think one of the players like most primed to make an incredible AI powered product, which is like a text to sample um part so like Mm -hmm. in addition to all the human-made samples like they have everything labeled they have the artist who made it they have the tempo they have the key they have the genre uh they have the kind is it a one shot or a loop i mean you could train an ai on every snare there would be millions of snares you know (laughs) and then Maybe maybe it's a separate tool. Maybe it's something I click on or off. Like, you know, either I want to have AI created samples included or not. I mean, I don't know what the what it looks like, but you know, I could search for fat snare, and maybe I don't like anything that's there. And I could say, what would AI can AI make me one? Can the can a model make me one mm-hmm. based on what it's learned a fat snare is? 
So it's looked at 600 fat snares or looked at 5,000 fat snares. And now it can say, okay, here's 20. Here's mm -hmm. another 20. Or, and then given all the metadata that Splice has, you can say like influenced by, you know, 90s hip hop sounds. Sure. Yeah, you could choose the genre. You could say, give me a fat snare and E. You know, because mm -hmm. this is this is an underappreciated thing about Splice is everything that the key is labeled. So your drum samples are labeled. People don't understand what we used to have to do for drum samples beyond just using our ear. Um, if Go you wanted, into that. What would you have to do? If you wanted to check the tuning of a drum. You would have to have you brought it into a sampler and you pitched it up an octave. And then you listen to it. So maybe a kick drum, it's hard to hear the tuning of a kick drum that low. If you pitch it up one or two octaves, you get a note. Bung, 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 bung. Okay, what note is that? Go to my piano. Oh, okay, that's a C. Okay, the song is in D. So let me pitch it back down to a kick drum and then pitch it up a whole step. And if you wanted to be really thorough with your drums, that's what you were doing. For every snare sample, every kick sample, I mean, a lot of people just use their ears, but I tell you what, it makes such a difference when your drums are in tune with the track. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, all of a sudden my mix feels so much better. Everything's sitting in the right place. Like It's like, you know, when I first started using Splice and I was able to really do that in a detailed way, it just totally unlocked i thought a huge quality increase in the music i was making so that development is super exciting then yeah and that's been around splice is doing that now with no right. ai right um, so i think you know the development of ai in terms of that use case is extremely exciting getting rid of all of those extra steps and then you know instead of just this library you have this tool that can create new sounds based on the influences you want. And um, I think it was TK who was telling me that like, it could be a, like something like that could be a really, really helpful tool for getting ideas from your head onto, on, you know, quote unquote, onto paper. And then you can fine tune everything from there. But, you know, the one of the seemingly more, tedious or difficult parts is just getting the idea out and then working on it. Yeah. If, if you're not an excellent musician, then it's really difficult. Or like, you know, when I was in college making beats, I used to just have musician. I mean, I still do this now because this is what's fun to me and you get unique things this way, but there was no other way than either buying loops from whatever existed back then. Maybe loop masters was around. Um, there were sample packs that people circulated. So somebody would come over with a hard drive of like five gigs and you had your five gigs. Oh, what do you have? I have this. I've, and, and you were just passing these things around. Or I'd say to my buddy who's a bass player, hey, you want to come over and just jam and like for an hour and I'll just get a bunch of bass licks, you know, at different tempos. Same thing with guitarists, same things with pianists, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I'd love for Splice to make this tool. And then, of course, you know, I've I've spoken with people at their AI department, and they're really just concerned with keeping the human at the center. Um, and, you know, like full song generation isn't interesting, right? It removes. I don't think it'll ever be that interesting. Like, 
it'll be cool sort of that you can just like whip up a hear a song that gets whipped up in 10 seconds by some ai but people are net i i don't think people will ever truly resonate with that it'll never replace the artist at the center i mean people like here i think was this in mike's friedman someone was talking about the oh yeah i think it was in the sam friedman sam friedman (laughs) sam altman lex friedman podcast talking about you know there are ais that have learned how to play chess and there are now ais that are better than the greatest chess masters in the world but no one enjoys watching ais battle each other in chess online people are obsessed with humans playing chess against each other and live streaming matches and following along with chess championships and stuff but no one is watching two ais play each other in chess no one it doesn't no one cares it's not it's not interesting so i i would like to think that that will apply to music as as you know this all progresses do you know token tracks the platform tommy danvers i'm not familiar no Tommy Danvers is like legendary UK producer, DJ, and, and he has a platform. Um, and I love Tommy, but he always says people will always endeavor, like people will always be interested in human endeavors and, you know, fascinated by what a human can accomplish. Here's the counter to that. Music has become a passive experience. People mm-hmm. do it while they go to the gym, while they drive, while they cook, while they work. And so in those instances, people actually don't give a shit about who made it. And they don't know. They have no clue mm-hmm. uh, how many of us are guilty of listening to a playlist, even songs we like. And maybe for a moment, we look at the artist, maybe we follow them, but it's like, we don't log it to memory and we just keep moving through the playlist. And um. So that's the counters. I think a lot of the places, unfortunately, where music is consumed and monetized now, it doesn't matter to people who makes it, who, you know, who who the author is. If you're now for the music experiences where we care about what's being said and who's saying it and that context is important to us, that will never be replaced. Like what type of experience? Oh, I think if you're buying a ticket to a concert. Yeah, definitely live entertainment. Live entertainment. But like even DJing could be replaced right now. Matt Dryhurst always says this. The technology we've, I mean, for a long time, probably without even AI, technology, you could have a DJ that's just a computer. I mean, mm-hmm. we play this all the time. Um, but like people still like to go see a DJ. Right. Yeah. There's something that matters to them, to the experience. I don't think that will go away, but it's just so impossible. Yeah, I mean, I feel like AI could be a decent radio DJ. Like if you just, in, you know, you give it a couple genres and subgenres and influences and it throws something together. Could honestly be kind of cool seeing what type of connections AI could come up with in music that maybe a human wouldn't think of comparing this to chess again i think lex friedman again was talking about how you know when ai uh actually no this wasn't lex because this was like specifically about music so i forget who said it but they were talking about how when ai learned how to play go it's it got so good at go 
and chess because just the way that it was programmed, it could come up with moves and think of moves that the human brain couldn't really conceive of. So like theoretically, I think an AI radio DJ, it could be cool to see if it could come up with musical connections and ways to blend music from different influences that somehow work together in a way that maybe a human DJ couldn't think of. And so that, I mean, that, I, that, I think that scares some people, but I think it sort of excites me as far as live goes. I don't think you can get an AI that can read a room ever. Like <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think I love using that expression, but right. You know, when you're a DJ, that's your whole thing. You're reading the room, reading the party. Yeah. I guess, you know, you could have something monitoring people's movement and, just, and heartbeat facial and recognition body, and body temperature and facial recognition, you know, oh, maybe, man, we're getting maybe. too, we're getting too into black mirror concerts right here. Maybe, but um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever be able to read the room. Or I hope it. not. <laughs> or will it? I bet you it could now. I bet you. It's, I bet you it could. Yeah, but like not in the you know. Can it read what you know what people are dancing to and what's going to make them move more? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll see one day. I think the point is. I don't think a lot of people are interested in that. No, right. Yes. Yeah. That would be like a, you know, a cool art exhibit maybe, but not something people would pay for yeah. normally. Well, maybe a restaurant that doesn't want to hire a DJ five nights a week would want a technology like that. Mm -hmm. Are there any technologies like that? Is anyone doing that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. But I imagine with facial recognition, software and did like motion tracking i don't know this i have no idea <laughs> yeah. so i'm just speculating you know yeah, yeah well this is a new one and this is a new topic for me <laughs> i like how we got into this randomly um but i think switching topics a little bit um i want to hear more about your musical background i think um because I'm I'm just interested to hear like how did you how did you start getting into making music and then I know you're you know you've been super interested in the tech and music overlap I know because of your involvement in water music and how we met but um yeah where did you get started musically I always played and I always wrote uh but I'm a bad singer so I became a producer because I needed other people to sing my songs and I've been doing that. Like I bought a four track when I was 12, you know, with some money I made from refing soccer or lifeguarding or something. And I've been recording, writing songs, producing ever since then. And yeah, pretty much went to school in Philly and I was super lucky. A producer kind of plucked me out of college when I was 20 and I and I, I went back and finished, but I kind of was working for him during that time on some pretty big records, like doing string arrangements for Kelly Clarkson and Daughtry. And he's been my mentor for 13 years. 
now or 14 years, which is crazy. I'm actually, this is a room in his studio now. There's a whole full massive studio through that door, live room, oh, you know, cool. control room with an old 1973 Neve that we flew in from Glasgow. And, and so, yeah, that was, uh, I don't know how, how in depth you want to want to get, but. So you, when you got into that, I guess you wouldn't really be an independent producer. You were working under him on like these big projects that, um, that he already had going. That's interesting. Yeah, I did that. I did that for years. And then one day he said, You've been the best hired gun I've ever had, but I don't want to pay you anymore. I want you to pay me. And you have valuable space here. I was in the, I've been in this room for ages. He said, if you don't start, you need to make your own business and you need to be, you know, paying me. And, and if you don't, I'm going to find somebody who does. <laughs> and the thing was that was so difficult. I was working on his record still 17 hours a day. I'm like, find my own business. When? Like, you know, uh, all I'm doing is working on your records. Um, but he was totally right. And it was really hard. And he was very patient. Honestly, that song and dance probably went on for a year. And I obviously had some of my own projects that were going on, but nothing substantial. And then my friend, my dear, dear friend, Andrew Lieb, who was an assistant manager to Bruce Floor over at Red Light, had just started working with this artist named Miyavi. Um, Miyavi was in the movie Unbroken, which was got nominated for an Oscar. But what a lot of people don't know, he'd been a rock star in Japan for 15 years prior to that experience. Um, and he came over to LA and then Andrew got me a writing session with him. And the guy walked into the room the first day I saw him. And I was like, I just know I was like, this is it. Like, this is the guy, you know, I was obviously Howard's voice was in my head. And I was like, you know, I knew I needed something substantial. And I went after it really hard and I actually lost the gig. They weren't going to hire me for the record, but somehow a demo of mine got circulated in the sync department in Universal Japan and Asahi Beer licensed it. And so they said, uh, okay, like they had already, I didn't know this, but they had already decided to go with another producer or try to look for someone else. Based upon this sync, they said, here's budget. You could do this song, a single and a B-side. Based upon those records, I then got the whole record. And now I'm on my seventh album with him. This wow. Is. Oh, wow. I didn't realize you'd made that much music with him. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah pretty much every song for the last six or seven years. So um, how is that process collaborating with him in terms of like ideation and, and, you know, finishing songs? Our process is pretty interesting. Um, he's just like an endless fountain of music and creation, this guy. Uh, so he, we kind of have an endless amount of guitar riffs and, you know, and kind of beats that I'll make. And then we like to kind of work in with different writers, third parties, people who I call like melody machines. They have like an unlimited amount of melodies in their head. And somehow in this combination of three things, you know, we birth a song and yeah, that's, that's the kind of the high level process with him. Mm -hmm. Um, 
That's interesting. That's a lot of music with with one guy. Is that like a is that a typical thing for like incredibly producers? Rare. Incredibly rare. Incredibly rare. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, uh, man. Um, do you do any? Uh, are you, so you're still working with him, I guess. Are you working on any other projects? Yeah, yeah. I always have a couple projects on the side that you know, kind of developing, and I've had varying degrees of success with those over the years. They're always like your biggest heartbreaks or your like biggest kind of triumphs when they work. Um, mm -hmm but I'm working with this Canadian artist, Michelle Tracy right now, who's just amazing. And she was signed to a major and then off it. And I've known her for years. I was working with her when she was on major label. And I just never thought the music she was making was her. She played me one demo seven years ago. And I was like, that's you. Like, I just knew it. It was just like totally bent alternative kind of indie stuff. She was making like really power pop music with labels, very Gaga inspired. And, um, which I love, but I always was fixated on this one demo. And when she became independent, I and you know, time went by a little bit. I hit her up and I said, let's do a project with this music. And it kind of has taken on some new life. So that's been really fun. And then, do you know Nudes? N-V-D-E-S? Uh, that's a funny question without any context. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know Nudes. I thought you might have known he's launching this virtual artist project called the vibe trillionaires. And um, he has a podcast as well, where he's done like a lot of web three interviews. You guys should maybe link up. Yeah. Cool. Sounds like a guy I would like to connect with for sure. But he's an incredible artist I've known for years. And um, I have a really exciting project I'm working on with him. He's a guy who I've wanted to do something serious with. Like we've done records before, but this is like a, a substantial thing that I'm partnering with him on. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Cool. Sounds exciting. How much, how much of your time are you spending on like your music projects versus like water and music stuff? It, it varies of course. Like, you know, when we're doing a season at water and music, that's an enormous, enormous amount of time and dedication. And water and music has become a really important part of you know, I think maybe even like my identity, like I love, you know, being able to like scratch this like super nerd itch, which I wasn't, there wasn't always like an outlet for when I was in the studio 17 hours a day, every day for, you know, 15 years or whatever. But you had the itch, you wanted to learn more about like how technology is affecting everything. Like what, what, I, I think I always had a yearning to understand the higher level market forces of what was happening once I made a song. Mm -hmm. Because I never, unlike my mentors and a lot of mentors before me, like I've actually never been in A&R. I never went to work on the other side of the aisle. So I've never worked at a record label. And so I always just made the music and then it left my hands and it would win. Some of them won really big. Some of them didn't. But I never, it, it, it took a very, very long time. I shouldn't say I never because it's not true, but it took a very long time for me to like, because I never worked in the other building, so to speak, to uncover what actually happened 
to the music once, you know, once they got essentially bought from me or whatever, you know, once, mm-hmm. it left, once, once the, once the birdie flew the coop. So, um, water and music, I really enjoyed when I found it because there were so many people all in different buildings. You know, if the music industry was all on one block and each vertical had a building, it's like everybody's represented there. Yeah. And, and and high level, like Zach Katz, who ran Sony Publishing for seven years, I met him through Water and Music. Evan Bogart, one of the biggest songwriters of all time, I met him through Water and Music. You know, it's wild, wild the people that are in that server. You know, those are some names I might have to follow up about. Um, yeah, I mean, and then you know, the founder of Hype Machine, Anthony, he's in that server all the time, you know, and these are people who have seen massive change. Um, from their individual viewpoints and get there on a server, maybe a hundred people talking in a chat and you can have a conversation right there. Maybe you can even DM them privately. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I think that's just a testament to water and music as an educational resource for people in the music industry. Like those types of people are not going to be in there if they're not learning incredibly useful information. Um. So yeah, it's cool that it's people like that. And then it's people like me who are just like trying to start their own thing and learn more and make some connections. And I have the same, you know, I'm I'm learning from the same books that they are, um, which is cool. I, I really do have a lot of appreciation for everything you guys do. Um, were you into Web3 before you got involved in Water Music or that was sort of how you got into it? No. But that's how I got into it. I had a friend who I will always thank in 2017 who told me to buy Ethereum and Bitcoin, you know, and just, you know, I just a very good friend. And I just, I assumed that money, I was lighting it on fire. And I <laughs> see it again. Um, but it worked out. But so other than that, it was like, you know, I, I really wasn't, I can't claim to have uh, been, been on the in, so to speak, mm-hmm. been in the know. Now you're pretty in the know. I guess so. It moves so fast, though. You know, it's like I've been focusing a lot on AI. And there's still people I'm really close with who are like every day in the Web3 sphere still. Um, And sometimes even me, I feel like, oh, I'm missing so much. Yeah, I think everyone has that some some semblance of that feeling, I would imagine, just with the pace of everything. Yeah. And plus I still produce music for a living. So it's like, as that picks up as well, um, you know, just have to have to make a balance. And then of course, be honest with all your partners about how much time you really have. Mm-hmm. Everybody understands what you're going to actually be able to accomplish for them. Yeah. As far as the web three stuff goes, like how do you, do you think, um, that it's going to continue growing and affecting the music industry and more artists are going to get into creating NFTs and creating digital assets and and using the technology to, you know, advance their careers and find alternative revenue streams. Like I, I think, you know, everyone who's in it is like sees all the benefits and all the ways in which it can disrupt the quote unquote traditional music industry. But, you know, there's also the, I feel like one of the sort of core 
um, theories is that it gives fans a way to invest in artists where if you buy their early assets and then they blow up, you are able to gain financially along with the artists. But it's so early that that type of stuff is yet to really be proven out. Um, and I think the fan value proposition is probably the most difficult part of the just the space developing in general. Um, so you like, are, you know, what are your thoughts on the future viability of everything? We need to reward, in my opinion, existing behavior. Like there's too much, fo I think there's so much focus on new behavior creation, which is so hard um, that, and look, maybe that is the right thing because maybe existing behavior and those fans are just not interested. Like so far as you talk to anybody who had existing fan bases, they've completely partitioned their fan bases. They don't have web three offerings that they push to their trad um, fans, traditional fans. And then they have specific language and offerings and even places they circle up their web three fans. So maybe it is like a total pipe dream. What I'm saying, which is like, if you want, maybe mass adoption is not the point of the tech, even though I always thought having a way to track participation in your ecosystem um, using blockchain was a really good argument for the technology um, because I always give this example, like I've seen Florence in the machine so many times. I think it would be great for her to know that. So maybe she could say, hey, here's a free VIP uh, to the next show. Like, okay, you've seen me at the Hollywood Bowl five times in the past five years. You know, mm -hmm. maybe I give you a free VIP. I say, hey, buy tickets to the next show, VIP and come shake my hand. Yeah. Um, how could she know that? Uh, well, we know that there's all these like frictions around ticketing and um, artists getting the lists of, you know, the fans who go, but maybe again, QR code, you scan it at the show and uh, that gets registered somewhere on a blockchain. You get a token that represents that you were at that specific show. She could see that. Um, and, you know, if you do that at every show, you could see, oh my God, you know, wow, this person actually has tokens from these five locations. Maybe I should do something for the fans who have gone to more than three shows on this tour or more than one show on the tour. Maybe you get a free shirt. I don't know. Yeah, uh, something like that would be cool. I always think about uh, my mom is a super fan of the Dirty Heads. I think she has plans. I think she has plans to see them upwards of t 10 times this year. What was the what was their hit? Uh, I think it was vacation. Probably vacation. Vacation. They had a radio every hit. single day because I'm always on vacation. I don't know it that well, but they've got a couple big radio hits for sure. But she is, like I said, obsessed with them. And then we were talking about. Oh, lay me down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Lay me down. That's what I was thinking of. Um. You know, I was I was just sort of spitballing her about like, you know, what if they released a song that you had to pay for to listen to and only the, you know, a thousand people who bought the song could ever listen to it. And she was like, I would pay a hundred dollars for something like that. 
<laughs> so it's like, you know, it's it's maybe mass adoption isn't the goal. Like maybe that's a good thought. Like maybe you're not really trying to do this to get, you know, all of these passive listeners to find a new way to support you. It really, I mean, I think that's sort of what people have realized and used it for, but people still always talk about mass adoption. But the best use cases are for engaging your super fans, giving value back to them in terms of like just connection to you as an artist and capitalizing on sort of, you know, the 80, 20 rule of 20% of your fans are creating 80% of your value. How do you, how do you leverage that in a way that benefits everyone? Um, Yeah. I don't know. There are definitely differences in the messaging between like I was talking to Daniel Allen. We had, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago and he was saying that his least favorite part about all of this web three stuff is that he can just put stuff out in web three and then it, ha- it takes him six to nine months to be able to release it in DSPs. And I was like, well, you're not tied to a label. Like why, why do you do it like that? You don't have to do that at all. And he was like, that's just the way that the market moves. And that's just the way that people want to consume music from artists is not rapid fire. You want to have a release structure. You want to have a rollout plan and you want to put stuff out consistently over a longer period of time. So there are definitely different ways of looking at it. He also said one of his big goals is to align those two avenues by the end of the year. Like, like, so he's not waiting. I've been saying this, but I think he's the first breakout and not because of all the hype, but because I saw a set of his at the first rising tides that was heaving and it was good. And I think his production is super solid. I think he thinks really clearly. I think he's also a good person. And um, yeah, like I could totally see him being, I, I think he'll have a career that flourishes in traditional lanes as well as web three. Yeah. Point. I hope he does. I, I really didn't know him or his music all that well. I mean, I did, you know, some, my due diligence before the podcast, but um, he fucking grinds, dude. It, I, I was like really impressed. He, I mean, it's cr- he said he was like living even less than paycheck to paycheck in LA for, for months and years at a time trying to make it and just like not spending any money networking as much as he possibly could and just fucking grinding on music for so long before he found any of the success in web three. And he's really driven by also finding success in like touring and having a big record and like, you know, traditional, you know, mean traditional means of success. And um it was I was impressed by by just his dedication to everything and and, and what it took for him to get to where he's at now. So yeah, I, I'm 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 rooting for him too for sure. Yeah. And no shade, it's not a unique story. No, yeah. I'm you're not you wrong. Know, you it, gotta it do that type of shit. To it really doesn't mean it. it's not earned. Like that that's not my point, but um yeah, you know, this is like, and of course, this is the narrative we all love, suffered for their art and, <laughs> you know, endured and now is experiencing the fruits of their labor. All this is true, by the way. But, you know, I also think that's another part of, you know, it's good to having a, having, having a narrative people care about as an artist is really important. It's part of what put context around your music. You know, 
Yeah, AI will never have that story. That's right. And as as long as, again, the music is being serviced in a place where we have the context and people care about context, right? then it matters. Yeah. You know? Live entertainment definitely will always retain that that context, I think. I think so too. I was bringing I, it up with with Sherry and and um I had I had thought a lot about like v- virtual concerts before like the ability to just like put on like a high-tech headset and goggles that make you feel like you're at a concert and um through our conversation, you know, she was saying that yeah, that uh, it's an interesting idea. I don't think it'll ever truly excite people, but what could excite people is new forms of immersive art like that that aren't live entertainment related but more just like world building digitally and incorporating different types of art into like an entirely immersive audio visual experience and then you know that that really excited me yeah it's we'll see like if things if if headset things can really go big yeah, I think they need to make smaller headsets. I don't know. I just don't know. Um, Flores, you know, over at Water Music thinks that... Oh, hold on. I'm going to get it wrong now. I can't remember if it's Apple or Google's going to blow the whole roof off the whole thing. But <laughs> thanks, one of those companies... One of them. ...is going to change. You know, the way, like, you know, the metaverse, I think, largely has been a bust. I yeah. Mean, in terms of money in so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that I, I, it's not like people aren't still working on, you know, that tech. So we'll see. Yeah, I think it'll be like, eventually all these technologies are going to converge in some mm-hmm. crazy ways. Like, you'll be able to, in the metaverse, in this like, immersive ai enhanced world by some some music in nft format that like you know gets you access to a live show maybe or something like that i don't know some crazy ways that all these technologies are going to interact eventually um you know like we said before it's hard to really predict what's going to happen farther than a few years out definitely Definitely. I think one thing I do know from music is there will only continue to be more and more music made and released. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that's you can bet on that for sure. That feels like something you can bet on. And then if you are someone who makes music for a living, you have to really think about what are the market dynamics going to be? What is your skill set and how are you going to fit in? You know, where do you fit? Um, if you want it to be something that you do for a living. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be one of the top 1% producers in the world, you know, who are still getting budgets from majors and, you know, making those records? Are you going to have your own independent outfit that is so big and popular that you're kind of cultivating these independent movements? And like, you know, you're doing your own thing like Toby Wigway or La Russell. Um but in the, in those felt in those guys' cases, they basically just built a label around themselves on their own terms. It's like you know the, this myth of the independent artist. It, it does doesn't exist. 
independent just means you built a team around you on your own terms instead of going and getting a contract from someone else and going by their terms. Um, right. It's yeah. hard to really do anything truly independently. You need a team around you that is going to help you, you know, build everything up. Um, yeah. Quick time check. We're going over a little bit. How are sure. you doing? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, is there something you wanted to specifically to kind of wrap on? Um, I just have like one or two more questions and then was going to give you a chance to see if we missed anything or talk about what you got coming up. But, um, you know, sort of relating to what you were just saying, how do you, how do you see the role of the artist and the label developing as as, you know, these technologies we've been talking about continue to affect everything that's going on? Like some, you know, artists you know, more independent artists have to, you know, play a lot of roles between like marketing and content creation. And, you know, they sort of can act as their own label. Um, and then I think like labels themselves, their role is going to have to evolve as more or less and less new artists are willing to take, you know, these, these deals that have been so standard for so long. So I'm wondering your thoughts on how you know, the role of the artist and the label will develop. Uh, regarding which tech, I mean, I don't know, I, you know, just in general and, and which techs do you think will affect it? I'd be curious actually, if labels have a higher hit rate now because they can watch the social metrics deeper. Um, and hit rate, not, hit rate, meaning not, maybe not hit rate as in like having a hit, but in getting money returned. Mm hmm. You know, um, because maybe, you know, I, we hear this all the time, but there's no artist development anymore. And, you know, artists basically develop themselves or a producer develops them. Um, and then when they reach a certain point, Lib will say, okay, this is great. You want to scale? Here's some cash. And here's some infrastructure uh, that only we have access to. And so if you want to, kind of be in a high growth scenario right now because all these different factors are happening for you where the place you should be. Um, that's still true, I think. But I'm curious if like they're seeing a higher rate of return on their artists because they, you know, are coming in the game later or there was ways for them to like have some social proof or mo more financial proof that things are going well before they get involved. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, My mom asked me this question the other day. She said, like, as far as influencer culture goes, do you think that's going to stick around? And my answer was that I think it will only increase as there are more tools available for, you know, creators to create and and distribute their work um do you think there will be more musicians like i mean i guess there will be more musicians as the tools continue to develop it's probably always been like that but um distribution is going to be more and more and more and more important i mean mm -hmm. there's like a trend over the past five years right where Hey, are you um, a makeup tutorial YouTuber? Want to make music? Oh, hey, are you a 
you know, maybe comedy short. Have you ever liked music? You want to make music like producers, you know, these, you know, like these projects were or can be attractive because there's built in distribution. Uh-huh. Right. Like, like, uh, you know, one of the Charlie and Dixie D'Amelio recently both got into making music. There's an example for you. I mean, and by the way, I've had people come to my studio. Fat manager say, hey, this makeup tutorial artist, you know, they have, you know, a million YouTube <laughs> Subscribers, okay, they come and they're sick. Like, you know, maybe they've made some songs with their friends recreationally before, but like worked with one one kind of uh, young woman who she would sit in the back. I'd be making a beat. She wrote the whole song in three minutes. She had a voice. She had a style. She had this whole thing and the music was connecting with people. She, she bowed out for mental health reasons from social media period altogether. But um, the point was like she had built in distribution, like she could instantly. It's not like I'm an artist and I make great music, but nobody knows who I am. That's the mm -hmm. position to be in. Yeah. It's actually, you know, for better or worse, it's kind of easier to say a lot of people know who I am and care about what I have to say for any reason. Yeah. And um, if I'm going to make a genuine play into creating art, if it's genuine and fans buy it in an authentic way, it can really work. And you've bypassed this enormous lift that artists have traditionally had to go through, which is like building a fan base one by one, touring, playing shows. Open, well, you, you know, still got to do that. It's just through content creation. That's right. right. I mean, it's probably just as hard to build that audience. It is. And they just did it in a different vertical. It's kind of my point. So like you, you can go horizontal, you can end up being horizontally uh, integrated once you've built up that distribution channel. So yeah, like basically my point was to your point, distribution channel, distribution channel is like, it's just going to be more and more and more important as the market gets more saturated and everyone is just like looking for ways to cut through. Mm -hmm. What about the quality of the music? If the music is, the music has to be good, but maybe it only has to be above a certain bar. If the main product is not the music. Mm -hmm. it, it depends on where the music fits in to and I'm not saying like, I don't want to listen to music that's below a certain bar, but, um, and maybe not, maybe nobody does, but maybe fans of a person will have a different relationship to this music than, you know, a non-fan. I mean, you could say that that's definitely the case always. Yeah. Right. Um, so maybe like, you know, certain people will be interested in hearing a influencer express themselves through music and other people won't. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. The distribution definitely will be incredibly important. Um, are there like new, like, would you think there'll be new? I don't know. I feel like artists have complained about, you know, not wanting to be content creators they want to be music artists sure so like i don't know how do you 
let them do that. Sam Ryder is a really great case study. He was a TikTok cover artist who signed to polygraph and then they spent the whole time fighting. They found out he was actually uh, had a lot of writing potential. This is a, I read this, right? So they, they got wind of him and they put him in a few writing sessions and it turns out he was a good writer. And they're like, isn't this what we're in it for? Incredible voice, good writing potential. Like let's develop this guy the whole time, like fighting, actually fighting the TikTok cover artist distribution channel thing and having a really hard time. Then he got on Eurovision and out of Eurovision started to really happen. But guess what? In my mind, you just traded one distribution channel for another. You said, okay, I don't want to be labeled as a TikTok person. Then they said they had to fight as being labeled as the Eurovision guy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to legitimize the music. But right. I think a lot of people, you know, people forget Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood, you know, Philip Phillips. These were all American idols. And and um, people who Autry come up- too, right? Who you said you made some music. Yes. yes. So- People who come up, I just realized this, but if you come through a distribution channel that you don't own, you oftentimes have to then fight a battle to like reestablish your own identity, right? I'm mm-hmm. an idol. I'm a Eurovision person. I'm a TikTok. I'm a TikTok yeah. So this is like kind of a new challenge, but at least you can now go, you know, with social media from anonymity to discovery in a very democratized way. It's never been easier or more democratized. It's not that it's easy, but I don't think it's, you've never had a better chance, I think, than you do now as the average person. Yeah. I mean, as the, you know, you think about the average person in like the seventies making music, you know, you had to somehow meet the right people who could get your music out there. Cause you had little to no con- like ability to do it on your own. No, you had none. You had to go to a professional recording studio. So that's good. Hopefully things continue to improve. I mean, you know, going back to the overarching theme of technological development again, you think about how technology has always affected humans over time. It's pretty much only ever increased quality of life and creativity, I think. like That feels directly true. So... You know, will that continue as things really take off exponentially? And maybe we're not, you know, the concerns I think are that we're not ready as human beings to keep up with the rate that everything improves. But so far, it's things have been only getting better. So I would like to think it will continue that way. Yeah, I mean, technology is deflationary, right? Because it you can now do the work of, X amount of people with Y, you know, you could do the work of 20 people with one person. Mm-hmm. Other jobs, I guess, get created in the long term, but in the short term, it's deflationary and it's it's difficult. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it might have sort of a, I don't know, a, a wave like effect, like, you know, things will get things will get worse before they get better. But hopefully it doesn't happen like that. I don't know. We'll see. Um, referencing that that Sam Altman podcast again, he mentioned something about how like if they're 
I think Lex said something like, you know, now I can do the coding work of 10 people at once. Aren't you worried that's going to take jobs away? And he was like, well, theoretically, like maybe if you can just create code 10 times faster, you can just put more code into things and make them work better. And so I don't know. How does that, how does that I don't analogy, know. how, how does that honest. analogy relate? But I don't know. But it's, it's, you know, hopefully it just creates more interesting jobs and lets people focus on things that are more creative and more interesting because that's how technology has progressed so far. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We will see everyone. And you, I'm taking you all along for the ride. Yeah. Whether Uh, we like it or not. Right. (laughs) Well, the listeners, I think like it. That's why they're listening. Yeah. No, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) um, Anything uh-huh. we didn't anything we didn't touch on anything you have coming up this year you'd like to talk about? No, just you know, if you are interested in music technology, the music industry, sign up for Water and Music. Um, and if you want to hear absolutely wild, uh, like music coming out of the best guitarist and coolest guitarist in Japan, listen to Miyavi. All right, some good shout outs there. I think uh, this one will probably come out after the Wavelengths Summit, but I promised Sherry that her episode would come out before it. So if you were there, I hope you had a good time. I I will be there in a few weeks. So um, are you going to be in? You're in L.A., right? Yeah, but I'll go back. I'm from New York, too, so I'll see you. Cool, cool, cool. All right. All right, man. Well, I think that about wraps it up. This was a fun conversation. I really I'm glad we finally got it done. Me, too. Me, too, too. All right, Young. I'll see you in a few weeks, I guess. Yep. See you soon. All right. Cool, man. Thanks. Wait, wait, wait. Don't go yet. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to check the links in the show notes to find and support Young Spielberg and Water and Music. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening and followed me on social media at the links in the show notes as well. Also, please don't hesitate to reach out with feedback or comments or questions. I love hearing input from listeners that can help me improve the podcast. And be sure to tune in next week for a conversation with Ahmed Nimali, co-founder of Kid Labs, a blockchain integrated ticketing platform 